This is an ABC podcast. G'day everyone. May I invite you to take part in this week's Sammy J Snack Pack podcast? Oh, I'm glad you accepted my invitation. Thanks for being here. It's important to be invited, isn't it? It feels nice to be invited. On the flip side, it feels a little bit bad to not be invited, particularly, for example, if you're the star of a movie that has been nominated for seven Academy Awards and you don't get invited to the Oscars. A little bit rough. That's what happened to Rachel Zegler, star of West Side Story, the Steven Spielberg hit remake of the classic musical. The film's up for all those awards. She didn't score an invite. Internet went nuts. Thank you, Internet, because I think she's now going to make it along. It wasn't a great look, though. I mean, it was almost as controversial as the time I didn't get invited to the Arias. Got a nomination for my album back in 2012, Skinny Man, Modern World. It was a glorious uh, follow-up to my less successful album, Obese Man in the 1940s, which critics derided as largely irrelevant. Anyway, I got a comedy album nomination, but I was, it was like self-released. They didn't, they didn't invite me. I said, can I come? And they said, you've got to buy a ticket. Ticket's like 400 bucks. Anyway, I managed to worm my way in because I knew someone who knew someone who knew someone who worked in publicity. And I got to get there eventually. I was backstage with Taylor Swift for a minute or two. Ah, good times. But it still burns, the shame. Because it is a shameful thing to not be invited, isn't it? And we'll be sharing that shame and that pain and maybe working through it together on the podcast this week. Someone who knows a thing or two about shame is Connor Ratliff, American comedian and actor who was fired by Tom Hanks 21 years ago because Tom Hanks thought he had dead eyes. He's made an amazing podcast about that and he finally got to chat to Tom Hanks himself. We'll be chatting to Connor on the podcast. But will we be running for Parliament? I don't know. I don't know if we can afford it. We'll find out how much it might cost a little later on as well. But first, we all love a bit of fantasy, don't we? Ah, we love unicorns and dragons and druids stirring the cauldron, potions, but... Oh, what the... Oh, yeah. No, it's not that sort of fantasy. Oh, okay, we're talking about fantasy football. Well, I don't know anything about fantasy football, but someone who does is Emily Chalice. She is a super coach, to use the AFL parlance, and she doesn't actually go to the ground. She does it all from home. Emily, what is fantasy football? Um, fantasy football is you. You are the coach. You can create your own team. Um, so I play. I play super coach. Um, there are different formats. Yep. Um, that you get ten million dollars, which sounds a lot, but you've got to um, you've got to uh, trade in or buy thirty players. So you've got to have. So you'll have your eight defenders. You have your eleven midfielders. You have your three rucks, and you'll have your eight forwards. So, and then you've got some bench players there. So then, what you've got to do is, so you can select them from any team, um, and then you've, it's all about the money. So then you, so who, who, who you, sets the price of the players when you when you're trading and buying them? Uh, uh, is it based on real world it, stuff? Yeah, real world stuff. It's based on their average uh-huh. averages, what they've averaged before. So, for example, like a rookie. Like Nick Martin, who played from Essendon, um, who scored, I think he scored five goals in the end. He was 102 grand, which is bargain, bargain price. Mm-hmm. Um, and then someone like someone like um, McRae, Jackson McRae from Bulldogs, um, he's almost 700,000. So the whole key is balancing your team, whether you go premiums, 
mid price is madness, um, which lots of people have done this year, where you get someone in the middle that has had an okay um, season in the past, but they're a little bit topsy-turvy and you're kind of having a bit of a gamble on their role. So, so, so you can change your team throughout the competition. You can swing in yes, and swing yes. out. Okay. So, okay. Every week, yeah, every week you can trade, but Supercoach is different. When you, um, we actually get 35 trades this year, but it's not enough. If you do the maths between 23 rounds and 35 trades, it's not enough trades for every week. So you've got to, you've got to hold your trades and know, know when to hold them. <laughs> 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 no way to walk away. Yeah, anyway. Well, uh, i got to ask then, Emily, because I was about to start singing The Gambler, but instead of uh, we'll stay on sport, not music, tell me, <laughs> when you've got your team each week, do the, then do the results, are they informed by the real actual games? Is there a, is yeah. there a point system by how the, your players play in all of their matches? How does that work? So each fantasy sport kind of does their points different with their super coach scores, but champion data will tell you how many goals they kicked, how many tackles, how many effective um, how many kicks, and, and you also can lose points by clangers, like a 50. Yeah. Um, so someone like Sicily, for example, has a real upside, but also he can give away a 50 or two, which actually minuses points. They also, you get scores for effective pressure, doing really pressure acts. So um, I think Chapman from Fremantle, he got like 25 points yesterday from doing um, from actually smothering the ball and saving the game. So there's, there's lots and lots of hundreds I, and hundreds of, of different ways to score. I'm chatting um, to Emily Chalice, who you can you can hear, this is a brain that knows football because uh, she is the first ever female winner of Supercoach. I've got to ask you, Emily, uh, let's get on to basics. I just want to cheat shit. Who's in your team this year? Like, you know, what? how, how have you gone picking your team so far? Yes. So um, now you will laugh at this. I'm actually... So the the scores have just come out from round one. I'm actually like 50th thousands this week because, um, which is really funny. But round one is always a bit of an always a bit of an outlier because um, I've actually done a really safe team for COVID and everything. So I've yeah. got like bench players and everything. So other people have gone a little bit more risky, and that's paid off this week. But I've got, you sound like you're already on the defence here, Emily. First <laughs> week in, and you're freaking out. No, no, no. It's a long. It's a long game. It's a, it's a marathon. It's 23 rounds. Um, I've got Tom Stewart in my team. I've got Jack Crisp. I've got Jackson McRae and Tuke Miller, who was my saviour yesterday, who I captain. And I've got Raul, who looks absolutely amazing, Matt Raul from Gold Coast, who scored just a lazy 157 points. So basically, anything over 100 is good. Anything over 150 is amazeballs. <laughs> okay, there it is. Emily, does it take over your life just finally? Does it take over your whole life or have you got room to do other things like work and play? It takes over your whole life, yes. Yeah, okay. um, no. <laughs> um, many, many years ago, I was going out with a fellow. Um, he got invited to a wedding of a couple. Um, we did know. Mm-hmm. And um, he, um, I wasn't invited. He was invited. We'd been going out for about five years. Um, and then I found out later the bride didn't invite me because she didn't think the boyfriend and I were a long-term prospect. Oh, they they editorialised. They decided it yeah. wasn't going to last. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, so, and she was right. <laughs> she was absolutely But then I ended up um, marrying her husband's brother. <laughs> out of, just out of spite? Was that a spite marriage? Well, well it could have been. This is the Sammy J Snack Pack. 
Connor Ratliff was an aspiring actor 21 years ago, and then something happened that broke his heart. In fact, I'll let him explain. My name is Connor Ratliff. I'm an actor and comedian. 22 years ago, I was fired by Tom Hanks. I made a podcast about it, and he agreed to be a guest. When it was over, he said he would keep me in mind if he was ever casting anything I might be right for. And that's the short version. That is indeed Connor Ratliff, and that is indeed a very short version of his podcast, Dead Eyes, which has had many of us enthralled for quite a while now, over 31 episodes telling the tale of how he was going to be in the HBO series Band of Brothers, directed by Tom Hanks 21 years ago, and then it all went wrong. He was told by a third party that Tom thought he had dead eyes. He was removed from the role, and he... There began something of an odyssey which is recounted beautifully with many, many guests across the series, ending with the final episode, potentially, starring Tom Hanks himself. I haven't got Tom Hanks right now. I've got the even bigger star, Connor Ratliff. G'day, Connor. Hi there. How are you doing? Hey, good, man. Uh, We spoke last year about this journey, and I was keen, like so many other people, to know whether you would finally get Tom Hanks on for the ultimate reckoning. How did it come about? How did you finally get the man himself? Uh, I got an email uh, on a you know a random Tuesday uh, from an unfamiliar email address that we quickly confirmed was really Tom Hanks's email address, and it was very simple. He just said, uh, "I don't know quite how to uh, what the protocol for this is, but I would love to be a guest on your podcast." And so we we uh, emailed back and forth, and we set up a, a day and a time. And we met, and you can hear the the entire conversation unfold in our 31st episode. Indeed. The podcast is called Dead Eyes. And look, I won't do too many spoilers, although I guess, you know, I have spoiled the fact Tom Hanks is there. Here's a quick uh, grab from his uh, chat with you. I was, I was, I, I actually got chilled. My heart rate, you know, yeah. skyrocketed and it said, I did, I, I did what? <laughs> I did what? Connor, that's Tom Hanks responding to this, you know, this allegation, effectively, that he said you had dead eyes. What was it like yeah. meeting him in person? And were you surprised by his uh, response? Because he didn't deny it, did he? He actually goes, yeah, I probably did say that. No, I mean, he has, uh, he did not remember uh, the recasting or the firing. But he also, you know, he said he doesn't remember too much from the day-to-day of directing that because there were just so, there was so much to do. There were so many decisions. This was one of thousands of decisions he was having to make uh, over the course of that episode. What really did uh, surprise me in a, in a great way was, you know, he, I, I said, does this sound like something you would have said? And he said, oh, yeah, yeah. Like, he, he really had no doubt that he had said it. Um, you know, because it's one of those things, you know your own voice. You know, you know if it, if, it, if it was something that sounded like I never would have said that, uh, I think he would have told me that. But he was very... Um, open and forthright about, you know, the way things work and, uh, you know, the the sort of ups and downs of show business and how tough it is. That's what I, I, I loved uh, about yeah. the chat in particular, about how, how nuanced he was about that. And he, was, he basically said, yeah, I would have said it, but um, it was... It should never have made its way to you as the actor. Something went wrong in the process, not me saying you had dead eyes, but someone should not have passed that on to you. Yeah. Yeah, and like, and he felt bad about that, even though that wasn't his fault. That was just a breakdown in communication, you know. And but I, I think it's it's uh, there is a lot of there were a lot of surprises 
over the course of our conversation, things that I, it's, it's, I don't think it's really, I, you know, I, I've watched and listened to a lot of Tom Hanks interviews over the years, and he's a legendarily great talk show guest. But I do think that because of the nature of this conversation, he really, he really brought his, you know, uh, he, he really, like, realized immediately what kind of conversation I was looking for. And he sort of, we were, you know, it's not like any Tom Hanks interview I've ever heard before. He's just remarkably frank and honest and also, you know, charming and funny and all the things that you would expect of him on a talk show, you know. But I also felt like he was, you know, it was like two actors talking about like, yeah, this is a, you know, that can be a brutal business. That's you know? it. I loved that part of it, that you actually got right inside his head where he was reflecting on his early years and how... Because, you know, it, it's easy to think, oh, he's a Hollywood star, that's it, he's always had it made. But no, he used to be an unknown guy who was getting rejected from auditions as well. Well, there's even a, a, a very telling moment at one point, because I made a reference to, you know, the fact that a lot of people have stories of disappointment, but that mine just happens to star a two-time Academy Award winner. And he responded... He sort of said, oh, well, those days had long, uh, long ended by the time that we met. And I thought, oh, it's interesting. Even, even when you reach the top of the mountain, it still kind of can gnaw at you that, like, he's thinking, like, well, I won two Oscars, but by 2000, I, you know, I was, I was no longer slow. winning Oscars <laughs> every year. And I thought, oh, well, like, it doesn't matter how much you get success-wise, the... The moment you're not experiencing uh, uh, success, you still have that feeling of like, oh, what happened? Just before you go, Connor, I've got to ask, you know, at the end of this series, you asked Tom possibly for a role in future so you could actually work with him professionally. When you're making the documentary about Dead Eyes in 20 years, uh, can I have a role <laughs> as the Australian radio host who was like interviewing you from across the world as a sort of example of how it was like a Beatlemania thing sweeping the world? Absolutely, yeah. That, that you'd be perfect for it. I mean, why yep. would we? Able, why would we bother even trying to cast anyone else in that role? You're a natural. My heart rate has gone up talking about this sort of stuff. I think this gets right to the bone. But yeah. I, um, I don't drink, so I'm a little bit controversial because maybe there's an idea that I'm not fun because I won't go along you know, with the drinking, mm. or that I might get to know your biggest and darkest secret mm. because I'm sober while everyone is drinking. And then you remember so, everything the next day. Oh, oh, 100%. The Snack Pack. Democracy is dirty. Democracy is soiled. Democracy is tainted. So say the critics. And one of their main targets for criticism of democracy is how expensive it is to run for office. I mean, look at America. You've practically got to be a billionaire if not a millionaire to become the president these days but what about closer to home here in australia there are also some pretty major financial impediments to getting elected dr jill shepherd is from the anu school of politics jill do you need to be filthy rich to run for parliament in australia disgustingly rich no i exaggerate it just takes a lot of time right so if we think about time as a resource Time and money are sort of the most important two things that we have, uh, you know, just day to day. So if we uh, think about what would be required in order to run for, for politics in Australia, most of us would have to quit our jobs. Unless we had a very, very, um, you know, generous, indulgent sort of boss who was willing to let us come and go as we please for the six months coming up to an election, then we can't really guarantee on an income. And so when we talk about 
needing money to run. It's it's sort of the hidden cost. It's not that we need to put a million dollars into our own campaign, you know, a la Malcolm Turnbull. It's that we need to be able to support ourselves we, while we spend 20 hours a day campaigning. Yeah, you like you just need to, to live. And, and I hadn't properly thought that through in terms of leaving a job. That's a huge gamble because obviously most people who run for office don't get elected, so it comes to nothing anyway. So let's, pack, like, let's unpack that. Either you have a pretty good shot of, of winning, and so it's not a terrible gamble, mm-hmm. right? And this is the case for people who are running for the established major parties, who are running in a safe seat for one of those parties. Mm-hmm. You know, it's, it's a big investment of time and money at the, up, you know, at, at the, the front end, but it's probably going to pay off. And they're staring down a sweet parliamentary superannuation scheme, you know, for the rest of their yeah, lives. Exactly yeah, exactly right. So it's still a bit risky. And, and you do still, you know, have to be a politician in the meantime. But at the end of those, you know, three or six or nine or however many years, life's going to be pretty good. But have a think about all the people who run, as you say, Sammy, with very little chance of actually winning. What's going on in their head? And what is enabling them to basically, you know, do this for a bit of a lark. <laughs> and I guess, you know, the spirit of democracy or wanting to participate can only no. get you so far. And, and you can't eat spirit <laughs> for dinner, can you? No, democracy is not tasty and nor is it very nutritious. So while we need these people to keep running, because otherwise, you know, we're down to the only two candidates who could plausibly win at every election, you know, that's not doesn't make for a great or fun election campaign nor a sort of fulfilling choice that we get to make on election day we do need these other people to run but it is also prohibitively expensive what's the answer i don't know well but we we need one don't we we need a better answer than what we've got because i imagine just looking at parliament uh jill as we do regularly being political nerds it's hardly representative of society that we live in and i mean even if you focus specifically in on the average age i'm pretty sure that the average age of an Australian is not represented by the average age of a parliamentarian. No, no, it's not too far off. Our, our median age as, in, you know, as a population is a little bit older than a lot of people would think. Um, but we do skew a bit old in Parliament. We do skew very white. We do skew very male. And if we think about the kinds of people who can afford to take this gamble, it's not, you know, it's not a 25-year-old woman who has just started her first job. Uh, she needs to pay rent. She needs to pay a mortgage. It is people at a certain point in their life who are comfortably wealthy, can live on investments, can support themselves, or if they if the gamble goes awry, they have a soft landing in some you know in in some way. Either someone's offered them a job, or they'll fall back on their parents, or you know things that don't exist for most of us in the real world. You know, it's not just the little guys who get left off invitation lists. It happens to everyone, no matter how important you are. Lord Mayor of Melbourne, Sally Cap, have you ever been left off an invitation list? Sammy J, I've had a, I've had a half invitation that I really wanted, but it didn't work out. When I was based in London as Agent General, I got a half invitation to Kate and Will's wedding. <gasps> and the deal was that if the Prime Minister of Australia wasn't able to attend, then I would be able to sit in that spot. Um, Now, the good news is that the Prime Minister of Australia, Julia Gillard, could attend, 
Uh, but the bad news was it meant I didn't get to go. I sat in Hyde Park and watched it on the big screen. Um, but for a moment there, it was quite exciting. Sally Cap, surely you were texting Julia going, hey, sit this one out. It's a long flight. <laughs> you've, you've been working hard. You've got to, you know, you're dealing with a minority government. Just hang back. Can I say I was sort of hoping she might have missed her flight? <laughs> the Snack Pack. Another snack pack in our tums. Thanks for tuning in, my friends. Please remember to share it with your friends. Rate it if you enjoy it. Apparently that is how people find podcasts in the modern world, and I grudgingly respect that process. I respect Ross Kavanagh, my sound wizard, much less grudgingly. In fact, I very much appreciate his efforts and all my producers where I do the ABC Melbourne Breakfast Show. You can tune in on the ABC Listen app every weekday from 5.30. Have a great week ahead.